Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, for listeners of the Covenant Podcast, we thank you for forbearing with us. It has been a number of weeks since we have released an episode. Uh, Dewey and I have both been busy with responsibilities to our family and to our churches. We've also been at least I have been traveling uh, for vacation and uh, around the holidays. And whenever we get busy, this seems to be one of the things that we put on the back burner out of necessity. But we thank you for for bearing with us. We're uh, excited today to take up uh, a topic that is of special interest to me. Uh, having never read the Lord of the Rings, or the Lord of the Rings, I'm somewhat embarrassed to mention uh, the the subject of what we're going to be talking about today. But uh, as you've already seen in your podcast feeds, as you've clicked on the title of this episode, we're talking J.R.R. Tolkien with our friend Jeremy Johnston. And uh, welcome back to the podcast, Jeremy. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Yeah, we've had you on in the past, and uh, we're thankful that you're willing to uh, have another conversation with us. Uh, we're having this conversation because H&E Publishing has recently announced that you have written a book on J.R. Tolkien. Congratulations on that. J.R.R. Tolkien, Christian Maker of Middle-Earth. And uh, I'm assuming you're going to have to tell me what Middle-Earth is. <laughs> but uh, to kick off our conversation, what prompted you to write a book on Tolkien, brother? Well, um, I've been a long-standing fan of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, my my brother, when I was a kid, uh, he read The Hobbit and he kind of retold the story to me and, and got me hooked on it. Um, and it was many, many years later when I started to realize that J.R. Tolkien is writing from a Christian worldview. Um, and so just I thought that's great. I'm enjoying reading Lord of the Rings. It, it's a book that I return to often. So every couple of years, I will reread the Lord of the Rings uh, and the Hobbit. Um, it's on my regular cycle of repeats. Um, but then along came, uh, I'm sure you, you, you might know uh, Dr. Michael Haken, uh, the esteemed church historian, uh, and he's a good friend of mine. Um, he talked to my publisher and said, you know what, we need to do biography on Tolkien. And uh, my name came up and uh, Chance Faulkner, H&E Publishing approached me and said, hey, would you like to write a biography on J.R.R. Tolkien? And I thought, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Let's do it. I'll do it. Um, and so here I am. Uh, they gave me a year. So I signed a contract. They gave me a year. And three years later, I finished the book because uh, it was uh, a lot a lot more challenging than I thought. Um, and I think this is because there's so much on Tolkien and he wrote so much. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're quite, you know, we know The Hobbit. We know Lord of the Rings. You might know The Silmarillion. Um, but there are scads and scads of other material. Some stuff is still being published posthumously uh, that he wrote. And then there's a ton of stuff written about him. So um, I was kind of drowning in a mountain of, of books and research. Uh, but it was a delightful three years to, uh, to immerse myself in all things Tolkien. Amen. Well, uh, unlike Austin, I have um, watched Lord of the Rings, but I've not read the book. So I'm definitely not uh, a, a Lord of the Rings connoisseur by any means, but I have watched the movies. Uh, it's kind of like in school growing up, you'd watch the movie, you'd read small <laughs> notes for the book. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, um, Jeremy, it's a delight to have you here to talk about this latest publication. Um, in the prologue, you write, uh, I quote, to ignore Tolkien's Christianity is to ignore Tolkien himself. And I think this is a fascinating statement to make. And I wonder if you could spend some time fleshing this out for our listeners by maybe sharing some information about Tolkien's conversion, uh, maybe about how his spirituality affected his wider works as well. Um, I think it's wonderful that a, a man this creative and a man uh, this brilliant was, was, as you mentioned, writing from a Christian worldview. And there are Christian undertones in many of his works. So if you want to expand on that, we'd, we'd greatly appreciate that. Yeah. Um, thanks for that question. It, it's Tolkien's Christianity. Um, 
in 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 the world of Tolkien scholarship it is sometimes and I would say often overlooked, um, which is one of the reasons why I felt I needed to write this book. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. Um, but I think people just don't understand what Tolkien was trying to do and and how his Christianity did inform his his writing. And, um, you know, as you know, uh, for any Christian who's truly a believer, um, Christianity is no mere addendum to your life. Um, you know, true faith will, in fact, inform um, everything we do. It'll inform what we value. Uh, it will inform, um, you know, how we understand the world around us. Um, it, essentially, it's Christianity is is how we see reality. Um, and so for Tolkien, who who I argue in the book um, was a Christian. Um, now, I, I should say, I'm not sure at one point <laughs> I should say this. He, he was a practicing Roman Catholic. And I know that's pretty shocking um, to say a Roman Catholic and a Christian. Um, but I would argue uh, that uh, that you know, although he did have misguided theology in a number of areas, and he was part of a, uh, you, know, you could say, basically a false church, um, that there are Christians within the Roman Catholic Church. There are Christians who are just who who, who believe in Jesus, who have a genuine faith, um, and certainly that Christian value, Christian viewpoint, did uh, undergird his thinking and how he saw he he saw the world and. Um, you know, in terms of informing reality, seeing things clearly, um, you know, it's kind of ironic that, you know, Tolkien, who's who's in some circles called the father of fantasy, the, the, the fantasy genre, as it were, um, you know, he's the guy that we consider the most realistic in terms of his ability to write and capture the full human experience. And, and what I mean by the full human experience, I, I mean the, you know, the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspect uh, of reality, something that, um, you know, I think we'll, if we get a chance, we'll talk about his idea of the true myth. Um, but I often think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer, who talked about uh, true truth. Uh, it's the same kind of idea that, that uh, because of Tolkien's Christianity, because of his Christian worldview, uh, he depicted reality as it actually is, which is why I think um, the Lord of the Rings resonates and has resonated with people uh, for you know the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, people continue from all walks of life continue to appreciate the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think because it's true to reality, it's true to their own human experience. Um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, as you know, there are people in the world, there are non-Christians in the world, there are even Christians in the world who, who don't always have a clear understanding of what reality is. Maybe they're a bit deluded, but then they come to the Lord of the Rings. And although it's about elves and dragons and hobbits and uh, those kinds of things, dwarves, um, there's still this beautiful portrait uh, of of the true deep human experience, the, the great uh, issues of sin and evil in the world, the great need for redemption and salvation. Um, these are major themes that Tolkien brings into his text, um, and it is unbelievably powerful. Um, you, you know, um, we, we can say that, you know, to truly understand creation, you need to understand or know the creator. And I think that this comes through very powerfully that you can tell uh, that Tolkien is a man who who knew God. Uh, and he certainly in his letters, uh, his personal letters um, and in other areas, uh, you know, he talked about Christ. He talked about uh, his relationship with God in the Bible. I mean, these are key, key parts of his his life. Um and it clearly informs the kind of things that he wrote. Um, you know, some some biographers and some scholars have have tried to focus on other things. Um, Tolkien, I think we'll get to this a, a, a shortly, but Tolkien was a um, uh, he was a professor at Oxford. He was an English professor at Oxford. Uh, he spent his career there. Um, he was an expert in philology. And philology is uh, the, the the study of language or the structure of language, um, and so some scholars say that you know the Lord of the Rings is based in purely in language, uh, which which it is. Uh, Tolkien actually invented uh, three 
entire complex languages to undergird uh, his his mythology in creating his uh, his his world, as it were, which we we call Middle Earth. What he called Middle Earth, and I'll I'll explain that too. <laughs> what what uh, there's all all these little addendums, right? Little digressions. Um, Middle Earth is uh, essentially the world that is, um, and I think I think one of the things that people need to realize when we come to the Lord of the Rings, um, Tolkien is not creating like a separate cosmos, um, the way C.S. Lewis creates Narnia. So if you're familiar with the Narnia Chronicles, Lewis created a separate world, a separate cosmos. Um, Aslan is is Jesus incarnating in a different cosmos. That's how Lewis framed framed that. Um, So when when the the Pevensey children in the line in which the wardrobe, when they pass through the wardrobe into Narnia, they're actually passing into a different cosmos, not just a different world, a different planet, but a different cosmos. Um, That's that's sort of Lewis's mind. Uh, Tolkien actually created his Middle Earth to be the world that actually is. And let me just, how do I got a quote here um, where he says that? Um, Let's see. Yeah, he talks about the book is about the world that God created, the actual world of this planet. So in Tolkien's Middle Earth, in his stories, the fall is actually in the history and it's affecting Middle Earth. Uh, so Adam and Eve, the, the temptation of the Garden of Eden, it's, it's not mentioned, but it certainly is influencing. The need for redemption is influencing Middle Earth, influencing the story. Uh, redemption is still yet to come in Tolkien's stories. It still is yet to come. Um, and the story is taking place kind of in this middle ground, this sort of mythic middle ground uh, before Abraham, but after after Noah, basically. It's this kind of, or even might, might be before Noah too, I can't recall, um, but it's kind of this nebulous area. And um, it's intended to be mythical. So Tolkien didn't actually believe uh, that these things would occur, but it's it hints at if there was a myth from this biblical timeline, this di- biblical window here, what would that look like? And so because Tolkien is um, is writing about the world that actually is, I mentioned this really about true truth and true myth and, and, uh, and reality, um, this is where he can ground it powerfully in biblical truths uh, and where providence has a hand. So if you read the Lord of the Rings carefully, um, you can see the hand of providence at work throughout the text. Uh, and as a Christian reading it, I mean, again, people of all walks of life, love the lord of the rings it's not just a a niche group of christians who 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 really appreciate this text uh it's almost universal um there's people all over the world in every every nation uh every every age group uh every culture group who are fascinated by lord of the rings um but christians in particular i think as we read the lord of the rings um you know there's a greater appreciation for seeing uh, providence at work, seeing God's hand uh, sort of working in these things. Um, let's see here. I want to go back to your question here because I was getting kind of off there. Um, so w- with that being said, um, you know, to ignore his his Christianity is to ignore him. Um, I think, uh, y- you know, it, it goes to say for, for anyone, I mean, for, for you and for me um, to, to sort of dismiss my Christian uh, grounding your Christian grounding. It's our identity, our identities in Christ. And so if you wipe that aside, uh, you really don't have much to work with. Um, and like I, uh, you know, I mentioned that, um, his love for language philology is a bedrock of his storytelling. Uh, he did create languages and then cultures and stories around these languages. Uh, it's pretty complicated stuff because he wasn't a scholar in this field. He, he's an Oxford professor, uh, and he's still recognized as an expert philologist. So if, you're, if you were to study that field at university, you would study Tolkien's scholarly work. Um, and uh, you wouldn't necessarily study Lord of the Rings, but you look at his scholarly work and it still holds up. It's still relevant in that field. Um, but I would argue, and I argue in the book this, that even his love for language is rooted in his Christian faith. Uh, you know, God who is 
the word who creates by the word uh who incarnates as the word you, you know that there's um you know christianity is a faith of the book uh we are a people of the book and it's no surprise at all that tolkien uh, uh, I think his Christianity informed even that aspect, that scholastic aspect um, of his of his life. And um, you know, you think of in creation, the one of the first tasks or one of the early tasks that God gives Adam is to name all the animals. Um, and so there's the you know, God created humans in His image to be wordsmiths uh to to create names to create language um and i think it's it's a profoundly interesting and relevant thing and it's definitely connected uh to to tolkien's christian um christian worldview hmm. go, go, did you have something else to say well i the uh the second part of your question there was uh or is that the next question hang on here make sure i'm not skipping ahead here uh is there anything more yeah, just look, looking into really how his spirituality affected his wider work. So um, I think you touched on that quite well in your response, but feel Perfect. free to elaborate if need be. Yeah, I guess um, uh, in terms of how his spirituality um, affected his his writing, um, you, you know, I mentioned again this idea that he points he points to reality to that 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 clarity. Not that Christians are necessarily you know. The smartest people in the world. In fact, sometimes there, there's a lot, there's a lot more intelligent atheists out there, you know. And and you know, the Lord has seen fit to to save you know humble, humble, uh, and seemingly foolish people. Um, and yet, uh, there is a clarity that that knowing God, knowing the Creator, brings to Christians. Um, we see things clearly, and that clarity to see reality, but also the Lord of the Rings points to um, eternal realities as well. Uh, one of the main themes is death. Tolkien explores death in all of his um, in all of his writing. Um, uh, almost everything that he writes, there's a major thread on death, uh, and he approaches death uh, from a very explicitly Christian perspective. Um, his understanding of good and evil, um, his understanding of the grand scheme of history. Um, you know, some would say that he's, and I've read, I've read other scholars on this, secular scholars who talk about the fact that, you know, Tolkien was was depressed because he had this. He talked about this long defeat. He said that the history of the world is a long defeat heading towards a, a miraculous, uh, what he called a catastrophe, a good catastrophe, a, a final uh, turning around, which is, you know, depending on your eschatology, um, whether you're pre-mill or, or post-mill or all-mill, uh, you know, different people, different approaches. But there is this idea that there will be a final uh, day where all things will be made right, where it's a happy ending that history is a happy ending, but it's happy at the end, <laughs> you know, uh, whether, you know, again, if you're, if you're post mill, uh, there's a bit of happiness ahead of time, but whatever the case is, um, there's this very Christian view of, of the long story. Um, and the hope that, that Tolkien has comes through powerfully. Hope is also a major theme, uh, in the text and it's a decidedly Christian hope and joy. It's a decidedly Christian joy. Um, and, uh, if you, you, you know, if you're, if your listeners are Christians, uh, and I hope many of them are, uh, they'll know exactly what I mean by that uniquely Christian joy, that uniquely Christian hope. Uh, it's not a wishful thinking. It's not a you know blind optimism. It's a grounded hope in the 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 perfect plan of God, the perfect um, uh, uh, you know ending of history with the return of Christ and all things we made right, all tears be wiped away. You know this beautiful story that that, that comes and. Um, I think that's why people like it too, because if you're not a Christian, you're you're reading this book, and and it awakens this desire, this longing for God, this longing for uh, God to come and to make all things right. Um, I recently heard uh, it was just a a soundbite or a video clip somewhere on social media. It was uh, Al Mohler, uh, president of Southern, was being asked a question. And uh, the boy, I think a 10 year old or 11 year old boy said, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Mueller, what do you like better, 
the Narnia Chronicles or the Lord of the Rings? And uh, it was a great question. And I was surprised by Muller's response. Um, he said that uh, uh, he preferred the Lord of the Rings. I say, even though, um, you know, Tolkien is coming from, he, he's a Roman Catholic. And Lewis, of course, was an Anglican Protestant. Um, Muller said that, uh, he says, it, it may be that there's more Protestantism in Tolkien than in Lewis. <laughs> so, because because he felt that Tolkien, and he's right, uh, Tolkien does follow the biblical timeline, the biblical storyline, sorry, uh, um, a lot more closely than than C.S. Lewis does. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's um, it was a cool thing. And, and of course, you know, there are other Christian leaders, uh, Philip Riken, he's the president at Wheaton College, is a is a major Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, Timothy Keller as uh, another is another figure, um, former pastor of uh, Redeemer in New York. Uh, he was also a big Lord of the Rings fan. And there are others, uh, other Christians who uh, who have greatly valued Protestant Christians who greatly valued the Lord of the Rings because of this uh, powerful perspective, this biblical worldview um, that comes through. And, um, you know, one of the things I would recommend to your readers or to your listeners eventually, if they, if they first read the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, of course, um, next read my book. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, then of course there are other books I can talk about at the end there that he, he wrote. But one of the things that I would highly recommend if you're really getting into Tolkien is to read his collected letters. Um, they recently released uh, just this year. In fact, I haven't got it yet. It's coming out in here in Canada. It's coming out in, uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, I wish I would have had it um, ahead of time uh, because they're including additional letters. So I have an old one that came out in the, uh, I think in 1983 or in the, in the early 80s, uh, the collection of his letters, but it didn't, it didn't include all of his letters. There's a lot more unpublished stuff with Tolkien, but the additional letters, from what I understand, uh, in this new edition that just came out, um, further points to Tolkien's faith. So stuff was actually cut out because maybe because it's too Christian. I, I don't know, but the, they've included it now. Um, and in these letters, he talks to his sons. He rewrites letters to different people um, who and, and basically pointed the fact that um, the Lord of the Rings is fundamentally a Christian book. That's what he says. It's fundamentally a, a Christian or Catholic book. He says uh, it's consonant with Christian thought and belief. Um, and, uh, you know, he talks about being made in God's image as a sub creator. Um, and, uh, you know, as he creates, he's reflecting the, what he says, the supreme artist, the, the author of reality, which is of course, God himself. Um, and, uh, so, so this Christianity comes through, um, and, and I, I, I should say here that, um, you know, I, I get some pushback from from non-Christians in the Tolkien world, uh, because I think when I say it's a fundamentally Christian work, or even with with Tolkien saying that that's fundamentally a Christian work, um, they they think that I'm suggesting that, you know, Gandalf is is Jesus or that if you know these characters, Aragorn is Jesus. And of course, the truth is that, that Tolkien didn't believe that, that Gandalf wasn't Jesus. Um, you know, Samwise, uh, he's not Jesus. Frodo's not Jesus. Aragorn's not Jesus. The way Aslan is, for example, in the Narnia Chronicles. Um, and I think we have to help, help, help readers and listeners distinguish between uh, what we mean by Christian. Um, and so characters like Gandalf, characters like Aragorn, Samwise, Frodo, uh, there are others who are Christ-like. So they have the qualities of Christ. The way, you know, David is in some ways from the Old Testament is Christ-like. Moses is Christ-like. Um, and so on these, these biblical characters um, that are not Christ, but they, through their characteristics, point to Christ. And I think that's what, again, why Lord of the Rings is so powerful, because the characters ultimately point to Christ. Um, and I, I, I'm hesitant to spoil the ending of Lord of the Rings, so I, I, I've got to find a way. Well, sorry, Austin, <laughs> I know, but this is this is crucial, and I'll, I'll try to be as vague as possible. But um, 
in the story, they have this ring, this ring of power, which is an evil ring, um, and they have to destroy it. Uh, they have to destroy this evil ring. And so the, the main characters, the Fellowship, are sent on this quest to, to go all the way to the enemy territory, scale this giant uh, mountainous volcano called Mount Doom, uh, and toss this ring into the molten lava uh, from, where, from, from whence it came. Um, and that's the quest. And what's interesting is, um, and I'll leave it as vague as possible, but the, the quest essentially fails. Um, Although it is a happy ending, so take heart. Uh, but it's not a complete happy ending. Um, evil isn't entirely vanquished. Um, you know, the main character fails to to redeem uh, Middle Earth. The main character fails to actually achieve full redemption. Um, and of course, that's exactly what Tolkien believed as a Christian. That uh, you know, Frodo, Gandalf, Aragorn—none of these figures can save humanity. There is only one Messiah in Middle Earth, and that is, of course, Jesus. And and that comes clear by this sort of failed ending. That, um, which is another biblical narrative, right? If you follow the biblical narrative, if you read about, um, you, you know, from day day one after the fall, when you know Eve is promised this seed. And then she gets pregnant with Cain. She's like, "Ah, oh, this is the one. Cain's the one who's gonna who's gonna crush the serpent's head." And and uh, and of course, Cain doesn't. Cain smashes in his brother's head, um, and commits the first murder and and uh, uh, fratricide uh, in the world. And then you know, other subsequent individuals, Noah. We think, oh, he's the guy who's gonna save the world. And you know, Abraham. And right now, I'm I'm doing a Bible plan and I'm reading about Jacob. And he's just, you know, Jacob's family. And it's just a mess, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, you keep following the biblical narrative. And th these heroes keep appearing. Um, and then they're not heroes. They fail. They fail. They fail. And then we get to Jesus. And so Tolkien incorporates that. He's got these great heroes in his stories. Um, but they all fail because, as, as I said, the Tolkien was looking ahead to the Messiah yet to come. And that, of course, is Jesus, who's who's going to be the true savior uh, of the world. And um, I should add, there's a couple more things I just want to say here, which might be of interest um, to, to, to hopefully all of your listeners. <laughs> but Tolkien also secretly embedded some other more overtly Christian elements in his book. Um, one of them is, uh, and again, I'm sorry, Austin, you're, you're not super familiar with the story just yet, but uh, um, those who've read the books or seen the films, uh, Dewey, I know you, you said you actually watched the films, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, when Frodo and the Fellowship, when they set out from Rivendell um, on their quest, that's when they're set out on their quest, uh, there's a date. Tolkien gives the actual date. He's created a sort of a Middle-Earth calendar or a... Or a um, sort of Hobbit calendar. And the actual date is, uh, where is it here? When he sets out from Rivendell is December 25th, which of course um, in cr Christian tradition, a, in the Christian calendar, December 25th is the traditional birth date of Jesus. So they set out on this quest sort of as an advent, sort of as, you know, the coming of the hero has come and, and almost suggesting, oh, is Frodo going to be the one that uh, that Eve's, that they prophesied the Eve is about? Kind of hinting at that um and then as he goes through the adventure when when the ring is destroyed and i won't say how or why or who does it uh, not to spoil that part of the the storyline but the the date is actually uh march 25th march 25th is uh has two significant uh meanings in in the in the old ancient church calendar uh but the key one is of course the crucifixion of christ so, so uh, you know Tolkien, in this very subtle way, um, uses the church calendar to try to show some parallels. And those who are very, you know, reading carefully and paying attention will, in fact, say, oh, OK, I, I see what Tolkien's doing. He's he's pointing beyond the Lord of the Rings. He's pointing to Christ. He's pointing to uh, the greater story, the greater narrative, um, as 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 it were. So. Hmm. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, wait, this is this has been already uh, very helpful for me, something that I've wanted to learn more about. Uh, I know very many people are interested in the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, Tolkien, and uh, I'm I'm here to learn today and we have a, a good person to learn from. So thank you. 
Austin, uh, will, right. you be, will you be uh, binge watching the Lord of the Rings over the weekend, perhaps after this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at some point, I'm going to have to inform myself uh, to some greater <laughs> measure. But uh, perhaps now I can be greater informed by asking uh, our brother Jeremy about uh, some of the early influences in Tolkien's life that shaped him to have such an imaginative mind. Um, I think you address this subject in your book as well. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, certainly his, um, so Tolkien had a, a, a very tragic life as a young person. Um, he was born in South Africa, um, just the turn of the last century. So 1890 something. Um, and uh, he's born in South Africa because his, his, his father was a banker, a, a British banker, an English banker, um, working for the Bank of Africa, uh, sort of on assignment uh, down there. And his wife, or his, his, his mother, um, um, is, is also from from England. Um, so Tolkien was born in South Africa, but uh, um, and there's some great adventures. I talk about his time as a young child growing up uh, in this sort of very unusual landscape. Um, but it was also a volatile time. And uh, uh, Tolkien's mother um, brought, uh, Mabel is her name, brought her, him and his, his brother, uh, Hillary, back home to England to, to visit the grandparents, to meet family they hadn't met. And while away from home, uh, from South Africa, uh, Tolkien's father got sick and died. And so he was unable to see his father again. And, and that sense of being cut off from his father, going on this long, uh, you know, several thousand kilometer journey from South Africa back to Birmingham, uh, being separated uh, from, his, from his father and then losing him altogether had a devastating effect uh, on J.R. Tolkien. And then um, a number of years later, um, his mother, uh, she did convert to, to Roman Catholicism, um, and it, it cost her dearly. Uh, she was ostracized by family. Uh, people had cut her off. Uh, you know, she was a widow. Uh, she had limited resources to support her family. Um, and again, for us as Protestants, we look at that, we think, oh, what a shame that she got caught up with Catholicism. Um, but the alternative at the time, you know, some of the prevailing religions, uh, denominations in England, Anglicanism was, was a big factor. Um, and in many cases, there are many Anglican churches that were fairly empty and dead. Um, and what drew Mabel to Catholicism was... Uh, she got connected at a um, uh, it's called the oratory it's this place in birmingham where it was founded by john john newman um uh, cardinal newman if you're familiar with with uh newman's work uh, his writing was founded by him and it was it was a mission that was designed to help uh new converts so adult converts to christianity to help them particularly with things like alcoholism and and that sort of thing and at this particular place um uh, th there seemed to be a vibrant Christian community. There seemed to be a genuine, vibrant community going on at this place. And I think that drew Mabel in. Um, there were, there was one particular uh, priest, there, there were other ministers there who, um, who really took to heart James called of, of pure religion, you know, taking care of widows and orphans. Um, and so they kind of took Mabel and the two boys under their wing and cared for them. Um, and so told, uh, sorry, Mabel, the mother, uh, she converted to Christianity, converted to Catholicism. And uh, even though it cost her dearly, she was cut off by her family and friends. Um, and I think that greatly influenced Tolkien, it drew him to to that, and I would say that his mother was instrumental uh, in in sort of instilling in him uh, spiritual values, instilling in him a love for for God, a love for the Word, uh, a love for Christ. Uh, and again, as misguided as Roman Catholicism is, and and by the way, in the back of my book, I I put a I wrote a little appendix where I I flesh out um, what I mean by by um, 
Roman Catholicism, what I mean by Christianity. Uh, I've got some colleagues who, who are who are Roman Catholic, and they sometimes think, you know, um, why are you separating Christianity and Catholicism? <laughs> so I, I unpack that. I explain what I mean by, you know, Christian and, and Catholic. And so most of my book, I deal with this idea of mere Christianity, sort of borrowing from Baxter, borrowing from C.S. Lewis, this idea of what are the fundamentals? What are the essentials? Um, you know, we're, we're not saved by... I'm going to say this very carefully in air quotes here, but we're not saved by right theology, if you know what I mean by that. Um, it's faith in Christ. There's a, there's a justification through faith in Christ, not through getting all our theological ducks in a row. Although, and again, I say that in air quotes because, um, you know, we know how powerful right theology is and we ought to constantly seek uh, because good theology is just knowing God better, <laughs> you know, and understanding how he how he acts and how he behaves in the world and how we need to respond to, to God. I mean, that's what right theology is. It's practical, it's beautiful, and it's true. Um, but, uh, um, you know, even uh, I quote R.C. Sproul, uh, who talks about that as well, the, the idea that um, there are Christians within Catholicism, even though uh, theologically the church itself still rejects some crucial key biblical doctrines. Um, so anyways, with that being said, um, so Mabel what was, I think, a, a key factor. Um, tragically, uh, she also dies. Uh, she had diabetes um, and uh, at the time, um, diabetes had no cure. There was no insulin hadn't been invented yet. Um, so she, she died, uh, quite suddenly as well. So Tolkien by this point was about 12 years old, uh, when his mother died. So father died, mother died, and it was just him and his brother. And, uh, um, so one of the ministers at the oratory, the, uh, a guy named uh, Francis, um, took took the boys under his wing uh and took care of them um and mentored to him and tolkien throughout his life spoke very highly about francis uh saying that uh he was like a second father uh he was very dear to them and mentored them um and was also a spiritual mentor and advisor uh to tolkien um later on i think you've got a question about this later but later on uh as an adult uh tolkien in in rubbing shoulders with c.s lewis in fact uh tolkien is instrumental in lewis's conversion some of your some of your listeners might be familiar with that um how how tolkien and another fella uh, and c.s lewis went on a late night walk in oxford um and helped helped uh c.s lewis come from you know uh, an, an atheist to someone a theist to eventually to a christian um and so it's interesting that those two who became great friends c.s lewis and tolkien great friends i think it was iron sharpening iron i think they they helped feed and fuel and mentor their their christianity uh from from there but um tolkien talks about his own conversion uh, under his mother's mentorship uh, around, I think, the age of nine or 10, somewhere in there, 11 years old, he came to Christ and um, uh, continued uh, with a few moments. I, I read about this in the book as well. There are times where he kind of falls away a bit and gets distracted by the cares of the world. Um, but uh, most of his life is solidly devoted to, to Christ, solidly devoted to his faith. Well, Jeremy, you're on a confessionally reformed Baptist podcast today, so it's only natural that we love <laughs> good use of alliteration. And uh, <laughs> it, it just so happens that you do have a section of this book titled Scholar, Soldier, and Scribe. Uh, maybe you can take some time to explain why you chose this alliteration to describe Tolkien. And by well, way, that, that, that is uh, such a powerful little uh, title there. I mean, that sounds like uh, it's thoroughly embedded in, into some Paul uh, Pauline language, particularly thinking about the the idea of soldier, thinking about the Christian life as a soldier. So we'll really be interested to hear you flesh that out. Okay. Well, alliteration. Wow. Um, I always appreciate the application of alliteration. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, but I, I, if I could talk about this. Um, 
it's sort of a nod to, to Tolkien himself. As a philologist, as a professor of English, his expertise was actually Anglo-Saxon. Uh, that was his area of, of, of interest, his area of, of expertise. Um, and one of the key features of Anglo-Saxon poetry is, in fact, alliteration. Uh, so it's a major thing. But also as a Christian, you know, there, there, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, many sermons I've preached where, where I, I use alliteration <laughs> to sort of organize the thoughts and the points. Um, but b beyond that, um, there is definitely multiple layers of allusions here. Um, you know, it is it, it, that particular section does deal with the fact that that Dear Tolkien was an actual soldier. Uh, he fought in the First World War. Um, he was a uh, he was an officer. I think he was a lieutenant. Uh, that's how the British pronounce that. And the Canadians, too, lieutenant instead of lieutenant. Um, the American pronunciation makes a lot more sense <laughs> than, than this British Canadian one. But lieutenant, I think he was a lieutenant, was his rank as a as a non-commissioned officer. Um, and he actually served uh, in the bloodiest battle, uh, for at least from the British perspective, and it, it could be the bloodiest battle, one of the bloodiest battles in World War One, the Battle of the Somme. Um, uh, it was just horrific, uh, the number of deaths that occurred in that particular battle. And it's astonishing that Tolkien himself survived uh, that, that battle because you know, tens of thousands of British youth were slaughtered and mowed down uh, in that particular battle. So, so that's the first part is that, that Tolkien was, was in fact a soldier. Um, and he was also at the time he was, uh, he was just wrapping up before he enlisted uh, to serve in World War One. Um, he was wrapping up his degree uh, at Oxford University. So he studied there as well, um, his degree in English, philology, focusing on philology. And then, of course, scribe is the fact that, um, you know, again, I'm alluding to the fact of this, um, you know, in a biblical sense, a scribe is is a is a teacher of the law, a teacher of religion. And and again, we, we think of the scribes and the Pharisees almost in a, what we do in, in a negative light. But um, the idea of writing and, and uh, capturing history a biblical history biblical theology as a writer so i was kind of thinking all these elements here as a scholar as a soldier as a scribe the different things that shape tolkien's writing down the road there is a scholastic element to tolkien's writing um you know uh fortunately it isn't distracting you could read the lord of the rings and not catch the depth of his consistency and, and let me give you some examples um you know, the, the the actual writing of Lord of the Rings took, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years. So it took him a long time. So my three years is nothing uh, compared to uh, to to the Lord of the Rings. But um, in that process, as a scholar, um, I mentioned earlier that Tolkien invented all these languages um, and they're consistent. So he's consistent in the use of languages, terms and so on, consistent grammar, consistent um, construction of, of various languages. So there is there is elvish language embedded there that most readers just kind of gloss over um but some of the hardcore tolkien fans who can actually speak elvish uh you know they follow this 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 classic element um other things like you know um the story covers a number of characters who are doing different things at different times and um and tolkien was very very uh concerned about ensuring that the weather you know, if there's a story happening here and he goes back and retells the story that the weather's consistent somewhere else in Middle Earth or the cycle of the moon is consistent. So there is this scholastic element uh, to Tolkien's writing. Um, and that certainly appeals to us, uh, this idea that, um, you know, as Christians, we, we ought to be, um, you know, I was mentioning earlier about theology. I, I, I think there is a scholastic element to the Christian life. And I think as Christians, we, we ought to be... Um, uh, sure of what we believe and be able to be prepared to, to, to give a defense for what we believe. And um, so there is that element there, the soldier element, of course, you're, you're capturing that sense of, of it's a battle that we're, we're in this war as Christians. Um, so again, Tolkien literally was a soldier, but there's also a spiritual battle under underway. And then of course, the scribe, the, the fact that, um, 
you know, we're called to tell the story, uh, tell God's story to the world. And that's kind of what, what Tolkien's doing uh, in writing Lord of the Rings. Um, he's contributing to and pointing to um, this great story, the true story uh, of Christ, of redemption uh, and that hope in him. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of that's what's behind that, that section there. Uh, I don't know if it was if you're hoping for something more exciting, but uh, um but certainly, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of alliteration. Throughout the book, I use it probably too much, but uh, uh, Chance, my, my publisher, didn't, didn't mind too much. So <laughs> You can't ever have enough alliteration, in my opinion, brother. I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Use it in my sermons. Try to use it in writing when necessary. So keep up the great alliterate, uh, alliterated work in your uh, <laughs> preaching and writing endeavors. Thanks. Always appreciating alliteration, as our brother said. <laughs> Um, uh, moving our conversation on now, I know I asked you in my last question, who were some people that, uh, influenced his imaginative mind, but now opening it up more, uh, broadly, who were just some other people in his life that influenced him? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess there's more, I mean, I talked about his mother quite a bit there, um, about in terms of spiritual influence, she was a brilliant mind herself. Um, uh, a great mind just because of her circumstances limited uh but she did homeschool tolkien and and his and uh tolkien's brother hillary um taught them latin and greek and just just amazing foundation uh exposed uh, she she exposed her kids to uh you know great works of literature um and in fact um eventually mabel felt that she was unable to teach tolkien he was just so bright that he needed to go to uh, a, a better school and he did wind up um at a at a at the time, a remarkable sort of private school or independent school uh, in the UK in, in a place called Birmingham. And um, in through that school experience, he, he encountered some good Christian teachers uh, who instilled in Protestant Christian teachers who uh, instilled in him a love for language, but a love for, for, for God. In fact, uh, a special course that Tolkien, because he was so bright, uh, he was able to take was a, a sort of advanced course in Koine Greek. So Tolkien as a young boy um, was studying the Greek New Testament uh, with a with a Greek New Testament teacher um, and and sort of getting into the language, looking at how you know the words of Christ, the words of the Apostle Paul in 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 the original languages. It's 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 remarkable. Um, but beyond that, um, Tolkien was also influenced by some of his reading. One of his chief influences was another uh, great Christian and, and Catholic writer, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, just a great mind, a great light, uh, hugely influenced uh, Tolkien's thinking. Um, another guy, George MacDonald. Again, these are obviously, I mean, they're, they're controversial figures in some ways, but I think uh, I think there's much we can learn from from these these figures and George MacDonald. Uh, there's a lot of his theology that that I I disagree with significantly, uh, but he did. He also wrote from a very profoundly Christian worldview and and his writings, um, particularly his fancy, fantasy writings. Um, some of your listeners might be familiar with the Princess and the Goblin and the Curdy uh, Curdy stories. Does that ring a bell? Do you guys know those stories at all? No, never heard of it. Okay, it's good. No. Okay. <laughs> For, uh, well, forget though. Just go right to Lord of the Rings. Don't don't worry about George MacDonald. Um, but he's another guy who had a big influence uh, on 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 um, on Tolkien in terms of looking at um, you know how you how you interpret or how you bring a Christian worldview into your stories. That's what George MacDonald did. Uh, is he brought a Christian worldview in? Um, he also Tolkien also had some friends. Um, one of his best friends at the school was a was another Christian believer, Protestant guy, uh, very 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 solid fella. Uh, Tolkien and this and this other young man they would debate uh, religion, they would debate faith, they would debate the Bible, and I think that helped uh, expose Tolkien to some some more Protestant thinking, some more biblical thinking about the world. Uh, so he's not your typical Catholic. I think um, he, he because he's been surrounded by so many Protestants, and then later in life, when he, as I said, when he becomes a professor at Oxford, um, 
he that's when he meets uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who was an atheist at first. Uh, Lewis was was born and raised in uh, in Northern Ireland. He's an Ulsterman, uh, but he but he he also experienced the loss of his uh, mother. His mother died when he was about nine years old. This is C.S. Lewis, um, and. Uh, eventually Lewis sort of, it pulled him away from his upbringing. He kind of rejected Christianity altogether. And um, he had a a very brilliant atheist tutor. This is C.S. Lewis, a guy named, uh, I forget forget his name, Um, but uh, through this brilliant mind sort of solidified in Lewis's mind that, yeah, okay, Christianity's bunk. It's, you know, I'm an atheist. And so, Lewis arrived at Oxford. Uh, he was a he was a, a don there, sort of. A, I'm not exactly sure the 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 entire hierarchy of professorship at Oxford University, but um, Tolkien was a full full on professor, and um, Lewis was something like a. Uh, not really something more than an adjunct, if you can kind of follow me on that. It's called a don. So he was a teacher, but not a full on professor, and. Um, they became friends. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien became friends. And then eventually, as I mentioned, uh, Tolkien helped lead Lewis to Christ, which is astonishing because Lewis went on to become such a powerful apologist. Um, Now, obviously, Lewis's theology isn't right on a number of fields either, uh, but he certainly is a powerful Christian writer and has a powerful influence on uh, all sorts of saints around the world. And um, I've been tremendously blessed by by Lewis's writing. But I think C.S. Lewis also brought to bear tremendous influence on J.R. Tolkien, uh, because Lewis remained a Protestant. He remained an Anglican. Um, uh, There's some controversy there, but I I would argue that he remained a solid Protestant Anglican uh, throughout his life. And I think uh, as Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings, um, Lewis continued to, to feed and prompt and encourage and support Tolkien. Um, they would meet uh, a couple times a week at various pubs. And uh, as Tolkien would write portions of the story, he would read these to this group called the Inklings, um, of which C.S. Lewis was a part, and they would get feedback. And uh, later on, Tolkien admits that if it wasn't for C.S. Lewis, he he wouldn't have finished the book. He wouldn't even written the book. So, um, so I think there's a there's a powerful influence that that Lewis had not only in writing and being creative, but also in uh, continuing that sort of more Protestant, more biblical um, perspective. Um, I would also say in terms of continuing influence, uh, he eventually, you know, Tolkien eventually marries um, his wife, Edith, um, who he was madly in love with and grew in, in love and appreciate across their long marriage. They had, they had a, a lovely brood of children and, um, I think she also had an impact. She was a more simple person. She wasn't a, a profound academic, uh, but she loved gardening. She loved simple things, and um, and I think uh, she also would have have a big impact on on her husband um, in appreciating simpler things. And again, if you you know the Lord of the Rings, uh, you've seen the film, and eventually, Austin, when you read the book. Um, you'll see that there are the hobbits um, are particularly delightful characters because they love simple things, simple pleasures. And I think he learned that from his wife uh, who was just down to earth. Um, And uh, yeah. So, and of course, Samwise is the great hero of the book and he's the simplest of them all. He's a gardener who just cooks and gardens. And there is an element there. Uh, um, Samwise is my favorite character. He's the greatest character I think in the book. And, uh, uh, Tolkien himself had great affection. He considered Samwise to be the hero, the true hero of the book. And um, uh, I would say that uh, out of all the characters, Samwise is probably most like Edith. Uh, so in a way, he kind of embodied his wife uh, in this particularly noble but simple, um, simple life character. Very well said, Jeremy. And uh, when we consider Tolkien's work as a whole, uh, we've already considered, of course, a few prominent works that he produced over the course of his writing career. But um, just for the sake of our listeners who are seeking to become better familiar with Tolkien, uh, what are some other important literary works that uh, you haven't mentioned yet or uh, any specific literary works that you think give us greater insight 
into uh, the man that Tolkien was. Again, you've already hit on several, but if there were any additional ones that you wanted to mention, I'm sure listeners would be appreciative. I know that Austin uh, and me both, as, <laughs> as uh, novice Tolkien uh, admirers, we would definitely be edified as well uh, with any insights that you could share. Sure. Well, like I said, there, there's a ton out there. Um, it is, it's hard to know where, where to start. Um, I, I would say um, if you're just coming to Tolkien, uh, I would start with the Hobbit. Uh, it is a children's book. So just be aware of that, that it's, he wrote it for children um, and his own children really appreciated the book when he was writing it and telling them the story. And, uh, but certainly adults can enjoy it. Uh, it's the Hobbit is a book that I return to constantly and am, and am blessed and encouraged and so enjoyable. Um, and you can see the hints of this, uh, increasingly developed and sophisticated mind unfold. The Lord of the Rings is a sequel to The Hobbit, but it it morphed into this massive tale. I mean, it was The Hobbit was very successful when it came out. Um, immediately, people were comparing it to classics like The Wind in the Willows. Um, uh, if you're familiar with that, it's a British British story, children's story, um, to Alice in Wonderland. But it surpassed them all. In fact, uh, The Hobbit is is better known than those other classic books. Um, and it certainly is is great. It's it's a great story that can be enjoyed at any age. Uh, and then, of course, the Lord of the Rings. As I said, it was a sequel because of that success of the Hobbit. The publisher said to Tolkien, "Look, you you got to get a sequel out. Write a sequel." So Tolkien said, "Sure, I'll get started writing the sequel." And um, and then 15 years later, this massive, you know, I don't know, thousand word, a thousand page tome <laughs> comes out and, and you know, uh, Tolkien's publishers were like, what, what, you know, this isn't a children's book. This isn't what we're looking for. Uh, but of course, it became uh, one of the most successful novels of the 20th century. Um, and, and, and I, I can't overstate that. There's been all sorts of studies done, different surveys and this and that. And, um, there's a number of them. The more famous one was done by the Folio Society uh, in, in the UK, um, where they surveyed all these people. And they said, out of all the books in the English language, you know, what's the greatest novel? And, you know, people are thinking of, oh, you know, some book by Charles Dickens, maybe Jane Austen, uh, maybe D.H. Lawrence or, you know, some of these these great scholastic texts. And then then it comes out decidedly the Lord of the Rings is considered the greatest novel of, uh, of the English language. Um, uh, you know, beating out great novelists like Dickens and like Jane Austen. Um, and people are scratching their heads. They're like, how can this book about dragons and elves and dwarves be considered the greatest novel um, of the 20th century, the greatest novel of the English language, but uh, it truly is remarkable. And I think, um, you know, it's sold millions and millions and millions of copies around the world. And, dozens and dozens of languages um so definitely the hobbit definitely the lord of the rings uh are top of the list um in terms of um this one here is a little more complex uh the Silmarillion. um i know this is a, is a podcast but you can see on the on the screen here um the Silmarillion is tolkien's sort of magnum opus this is his work that he spent uh most of his life working on um he started drafting out versions of this back when he was in world war one so you know 1914 he started working on this uh this story this great mythic tale and um it was published by his uh son christopher tolkien sort of took up the torch and took all of his father's notes and compiled it into the cimmerillion um but it is it's a prof and it's also profoundly Christian work. You, it's about creation. It's about the fall, uh, but through this sort of mythical lens that he creates, it's very edifying. But it's hard. It's hard to read. It's very dense um, because it's not written in the same delightful narrative style uh, that the Lord of the Rings is. It's almost like, um, almost like a like you're reading a summary of a myth, um, and you almost feel when you read the Silmarillion, there's there's just jam packed full of stories in there uh, but that you just you you wish if i could use that word that tolkien had written full-on lord of the rings length novels for each of these little snippets but um if you are going to tackle the Cimmerillion, i recommend that you listen to a podcast i know i shouldn't advertise another podcast on this podcast uh, but two guys they're just tolkien fans uh called the prancing pony podcast um and they take an episode per chapter 
and they talk you through it. Uh, although it goes for about an hour and a half each chapter that, that they talk about, but it's so helpful. They're so knowledgeable. One of the guys there, I don't know all the details, but I, I'm pretty sure he's a believer listening to the way he talks. Um, but it's not overtly a Christian podcast, but there are great two, two guys. Um, I, I forget their names. Mark, Mark's uh, something and, and Alan Sisto, are, they're, they're great. And they just help you understand uh, the Silmarillion. If you want to understand Tolkien as a scholar um, and how he brings his Christian view, his Christian worldview and scholarship together. Um, uh, he wrote a number of essays, um, profound essays. Uh, he was instrumental in bringing Beowulf back and, and drawing out a, a sort of a Christian worldview in, in Beowulf, which is the first, um, the first known literary work in the English language. Um, it goes back about a thousand years when it was written, written in Anglo-Saxon, um, but written by a Christian monk. So Beowulf, of course, he talks a lot about Christianity as a scholar, um, but I highly recommend his essay, which can be found in all sorts of compilations of his writing. It's called On Fairy Stories. And in there, Tolkien gives his sort of um, uh, seminal explanation or, or, or key explanation of um, what fairy stories or fantasy literature is all about and the value it can bring to us as humans. But then he also brings in a profoundly Christian understanding of the creative process and why using our imagination is necessary as Christians. So he brings in this powerful text. It's it's an essay that, that I mentioned is still read in the realm of if you're studying formally fairy stories or um you know Grimm's Grimm's fairy tales, all these kind of things. You're you're going to read Lewis's or sorry, a Tolkien's essay here. But as a Christian, it's very enlightening because he talks openly and freely about how, um, uh, you know, how as Christians or as human beings, we're made in the image of God, and we we don't make stuff up. We don't create ex nihilo. God creates ex nihilo. We as sub creators, he calls it, uh, create using the stuff that God made. Right. So we, we build and we create and we shape using God's raw material that he's given us, uh, which is a very biblical view of, of creativity. Um, to get a sense of Tolkien as a father, uh, he did write a bunch of other children's books beyond uh, The Hobbit. But one of the best is this. Uh, it's called uh, J.R. Tolkien Letters from Father Christmas. Um, he started writing these very delightful letters to his children uh, from from Father Christmas or or Santa Claus. I know I'm getting quite controversial here <laughs> talking about Santa Claus now on, on a uh, reformed podcast. But, uh, he, you know, he he he. Um, what you see in there is he tells these great little funny stories about about the you know the North Pole and so on and so forth, but they're not silly. They're not silly stories like some of these Christian, uh, or sorry, these um, Christmas specials that you see on TV. You know Rudolph and things like that. There's a there's a real delight that he has in his own children and a great sense of humor. And so, um, if you want to get a sense of of a father who truly loves his kids, a father who wants to entertain his kids and but still teach them good lessons, uh, that collection, Letters from Father Christmas. They're written not to be published. Um, he wrote them literally to letters to his own kids. Um, I think there's about 20 years of letters that he wrote each year. Um, and uh, but uh, it was again after his death, um, one of his uh, I think his daughter-in-law, uh, she compiled them and published them uh, as letters from Father Christmas. Um, one more story. There's lots more I can recommend, but uh, um, if you're looking for a non-Middle Earth, so something that's not really about the specific um, world of hobbits and dwarves and elves, um, he wrote a, a very short story called uh, Farmer Giles of Ham. Um, it's a very funny, very delightful story about this humble farmer who goes on an adventure to slay a dragon. Um, and again, it, it's also very, very rich in biblical and Christian values. Christian ideas come through very powerfully. Um, 
And uh, in my book, I, I sort of do a bit of a digressive analysis of some of those Christian illusions and um, how, uh, how Tolkien's drawing on his worldview to present this great story. And it's a great story in itself. I, I read it to my own kids and we just howled. It's so funny and so much, uh, such a great story. And uh, with these great biblical ideas embedded there coming through uh, so, so, so beautifully and so powerfully. Uh, thank you for this, uh, brother, and thank you for your time to have this conversation about Tolkien. We'll make sure that we link um, in this episode to your book. Um, very uh, informative episode for me. I know that I personally am uh, not immediately drawn toward allegory, but I have been uh, provoked to put some effort in after this conversation that you've had with me. Uh, but... Uh, I'll give you the opportunity to wrap up our show with any final thoughts that you might have about your book, Tolkien, any of his literature, any final thoughts or encouragements that you'd like to leave to our listeners. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, just, just reading a story that, uh, is grounded in a Christian biblical worldview without being explicitly or in your face. Um, the way other, um, you know, sometimes, you know, C.S. Lewis is almost over the top in, in trying to push the, the, the Christian agenda. In fact, uh, you know, Tolkien was critical of C.S. Lewis about, about how almost pushy he was with some of these things. And um, you mentioned allegory. It, it's, it's not an allegory. In fact, it's not like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress at all, um, which is about a entirely symbolic world. Although I love, I love Pilgrim's Progress. I think it's, it's been an edifying read for me over the years. Um, but it can be a bit too obvious, too pushy as well. But there's a subtlety, a nuanced subtlety. Uh, what I mentioned at the beginning about reality, um, it's true to life. And there are times where I'm facing difficult times or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, struggles and this and that, um, where I, I'm encouraged by the example of the characters in The Lord of the Rings as they persevere, as they cling to a greater hope, as we see providence at work. Um, so, yeah, so I encourage I encourage all of your listeners and uh, and you two guys to, to pick up and read Tola Lege, <laughs> pick up and read uh, not only the word of God, but which is wonderful and paramount, but uh, but but the Lord of the Rings, you will not be disappointed. It is a tough slog. You do have to hang in there and persevere. And, um, but boy, it's rewarding. Uh, as I said, it's, it's, uh, I return to the Lord of the Rings, um, every two years. And every time I finish reading it, I, I, uh, I'm ready to go again. That, that's, I, I do force myself to wait at least two years, but <laughs> I just, I just finished it recently, um, reading to my, to my daughters, um, the Lord of the Rings. And as uh, soon as I finished, I was like, I'm ready to go back and start again. But there are other things that I ought to read uh, as well. So um, yeah, so I encourage you all to sort of, yeah, take it, take it on. It's definitely worth it. You will not be disappointed. Your faith will be encouraged um, and uh, you'll be the wiser and the, and the better for it. Very well said, brother. It's been a delight getting to talk with you about your latest book and about the life of Tolkien. We pray that the Lord will continue to richly bless your writing ministry for years to come. We hope our listeners as well um, will take the opportunity to explore this great author for their own benefit uh, and just for their own enjoyment to enjoy uh, the fruit of, of Tolkien's writing corpus. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today, my friend. Thank you for having me, and thanks for letting me talk about uh, one of my favorite authors. Absolutely. To our listeners, we want to thank you as well for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.